Guardian Unlimited. Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic. We're back, say it loud, we're halal and proud. You've been very patient while we've been away and I've been poked to within an inch of my life by listeners on Facebook, so thank you and thank you. In this week's show, making fun of Muslims, no smoke without fire or fanning the flames of hatred. We've an end-of-term report about on-campus extremism and what's being done about it. And as a special treat, we have the world's first anti-terror pop song. In the studio is Fessel Hundra from the Federation of Student Islamic Societies. Hello and assalamu alaikum, Fessel. What's the most offensive thing you've seen about Muslims? I think the most offensive thing perhaps were the Danish cartoons when they initially came out because obviously the people who drew those cartoons perhaps completely missed uh, or misunderstood rather the, the whole relationship between the Muslims and, and the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so perhaps that would be the, perhaps the most offensive thing. Well, we'll be talking about cartoons later in the programme. An all-singing, all-dancing musical about an Afghan who gets sucked into terrorism is upsetting people who say you shouldn't make fun of terrorists or their victims. But the creators of Jihad the Musical say the production appeals to a tradition of laughing in the face of adversity. But how wrong is it to laugh about extremism and terrorism? Well, in America, two bloggers from a conservative-leaning website called The Nose on Your Face have created a cartoon character called Islamic Rage Boy, a composite of what they see as the perennially angry Muslim who is ready to burn, kill and maim in the name of Islam. History tells us that cartoons and Muslims are an explosive combination, so these people are either brave or foolhardy. Now, obviously, we can't show you the cartoons because this is a podcast, so it won't really work, but we can play you a song from Islamic Rage Boy, and it's called Infidels. Lurking in the dark of Sadr City slums, planning my attack, dodging Arab thugs, bombs on waistlines make a splendid, glorious sight. By Muhammad's beard, I hope for 72 virgins tonight. Oh, infidels, infidels in the holy land. Oh, what joy it brings to call upon your nose, head or hand. Oh, infidels, infidels in the holy land. Oh, what joy it brings to call upon your nose, head or hand. On the line from New York is one of the bloggers from The Nose on Your Face, Hugh Pankuk. Hugh, where did the idea of Islamic Rage Boy come from? Islamic Rage Boy really was born uh, first out of the protests around Pope Benedict, which was, I believe, in August of 2006. And there were quite a few uh, large-scale protests throughout the Islamic world against Pope Benedict. We saw some of the pictures of a gentleman in India and um, came up with the character Islamic Rage Boy. But it wasn't just to mock fun at the protesters or that person in particular. It was to counterbalance what we saw as the call for murder in the name of religion. So is that the message behind Islamic Rage Boy? Well, really the only intent of Islamic Rage Boy is to create laughter that can counterbalance what we see as a horrific interpretation of Islam that is the loudest voice of Islam that we hear. Uh, He exists really to ridicule and emasculate people who think they are the self-appointed arbitrators of Islamic law. What we're trying to do is poke fun and to fight horror and murder with laughter. Aren't you just indulging in racial stereotypes? I don't think so. I know racism is kind of a 
a, a tough word to argue about, but I think all we're trying to do is interpret what we hear. Reasonable people understand that Islamic Rage Boy doesn't represent the entire voice of Islam, only the loudest, uh, and only fools would use him as a pretext for any sort of reprisal against Islamic people. But the loudest voice we hear from Islam right now is the voice of fundamentalism and extremism, and that's what we're interpreting. And I think the other important issue here that is, is that, particularly in America, we laugh at ourselves constantly. We parody things. We parody Catholics. We parody gays. We parody Jews. And people have learned to laugh at themselves. It seems that Islam has not. What about the victims of Muslim extremists? Aren't you making fun of them too? No. How am I doing that? people are dying, you know, and there are Muslims out there who are committing acts of mass murder, and the relatives of those victims might not take too kindly to you making an icon out of somebody like Rage Boy. Actually, Yeah, I, I see your point. Actually, to the contrary, we've been reached out to not only by the military, but also by people who lost relatives in 9-11, and they understand that what we're dealing with here, um, and, and this is you know, this goes back to the beginning of Islamic Rage Boy. When there is a group of people who had filmed the decapitation of an innocent human being, it calls for something, particularly when you are so paralyzed by that horror. And we thought that satire and mockery was the best way to really dismantle that. And uh, quite to the contrary, people who've been involved with any sort of horror loss relatives to terrorism have supported us. Still with me is Faisal Hundra from the Federation of Student Islamic Societies, FOSIS. Your training to be a doctor is laughter the best medicine. <laughs> I think laughter has its place, um, but I don't think its place is in dealing with terrorism. I think it's utterly absurd to suggest that to counter this kind of radical ideology which we see, that the answer to that, if you like, is, is to poke fun at different elements, if you like, of, of the Islamic religion. Um, and I think it's a very easy stereotype to kind of perpetuate and, you know, to get out there, particularly with the media and the way it reports on certain incidences and events. So I think it's, a, I think it's just really more of an excuse than anything else. I did see you smiling, though, when we played the song. It was. <laughs> you were laughing. It made you laugh. It was just absolutely absurd. I mean, I didn't know whether to laugh or, or to cry. <laughs> I thought I'd laugh instead. <laughs> well, it's all very well making fun of extremism, but are the cartoons any good? I asked Guardian cartoonist Steve Bell how he deals with a sensitive issue of illustrating Islam. Um, I approach it on a case-by-case basis. But this last year, I suppose, since February 2006, when the whole um, Danish cartoon thing broke on the surface, I did, did give one as a cartoonist pause for thought, because cartoons that are sort of stereotyping or sort of vaguely abusive of uh, Islam have been common currency for years. It's, this is the first time, though, that they've been objected to a sort of on a sort of global basis. I mean, I don't really change the way I approach cartoon. I always try to sort of take care about things. It might not seem that from, <laughs> from looking at them, because I, they are quite rude, and I do try to be rude, and I also do try to give offence a lot of the time, but I, I, I choose my targets carefully. So it's a question of who, you, who you're aiming to outrage. So I, I think um, cartoons, political cartoons, should be about outraging the powerful. In the case of the Danish cartoons about Mohammed the Prophet, that, that was a case of uh, something being whipped into a frenzy, which actually, when you look at it, uh, look at the actuality of the cartoons, they are pretty bland. It's the way they were used, the way they were taken, that, that was the problem. But it all shows up a sort of, um, uh, a sort of chronic misunderstanding, I think. 
I mean, the cartoons themselves, as you said, they were a bit slight. They were a bit nothing, really. The, the, the only one that was sort of vaguely funny was the one about um, they're running out of virgins, but that's just a sort of symbol tag. <laughs> um, the, 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 the one that seemed to cause all the fury was the turban with a fuse in it. And I suppose what's bad, well, what, what's crap about that, in a sense, it's, it's just a sort of poor stereotype. I'm, I'm very careful about stereotypes. I, I, I believe in stereotypes, in a sense, because cartoons are all about stereotypes, but they should be all about upending stereotypes and questioning them and playing around with them and fooling about. Steve, what's the difference between a good cartoon and a bad cartoon? Ah, well, it's always subjective, because a, a good cartoon is one that makes you laugh, but... Something that makes you laugh might not make me laugh. You've got to sort of judge the intention, judge the way they're drawn. All I know is what, what I laugh at, what I find funny. Have um, you seen Islamic Rage Boy at all? <laughs> well, I'm just looking at, looking at him on page three of yesterday's paper, and uh, I, I can see why he's, um, why he's pissed off about it, because um, it's just taking his face and turning it into something else. And it's all about stereotyping, and it, you know, it is a joke, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, as I say, context is everything. You know, to, to turn somebody, somebody's actual face into a, a logo, as it were, is a, bit, is a bit bad, I would have thought. Steve Bell, cartoon genius. Someone who's standing up to extremism in a very different way is Wasim Mahmood. He's the project coordinator for what is probably the world's first anti-terrorism pop song. It's called Yeham Nehi. This is not us, and it's just been released in the UK. He popped into our studio to tell us more. The song is a band-aid type of song sung by eight of the top ten Pakistani artists uh, denouncing terrorism. It's actually a message which is very, very simple. This is not us, basically, standing up for the moderate Muslims. And who's the song aimed at? The song is basically aimed at the young Pakistanis, young Muslims around the, uh, around the world, in fact, who want nothing to do with terrorism at all. And this really gives them a voice. pop song is the right way to go about winning hearts and minds? Uh, it's a starting point. I think if we look over the last few decades, even in, as you're too young to remember, but in the 60s... I don't know about <laughs> that. I'm older than I look. <laughs> in the 60s, uh, uh, the peace movement of the 60s was mm. led by uh, the Dylans of the world. I mean, some of the greatest songs came about as a result of those movements. Collectively, these artists have uh, a fan base in the tens of millions, so that was a great starting point for me. But do they have that same fan base in Britain? It's a very, very different market. Uh, they, you'd be surprised they do. I mean, uh, the number of Pakistani channels here, the number of music channels here testify to the fact that they really do have the fan base. I mean, the concerts sell out where places like Wembley Arena, even this weekend we have... Uh, uh, Ali Zafar, one of them, playing Trafalgar Square. But in terms of um, the audience, surely you're preaching to the converted. I think the whole idea of the song is to engender debate, and that has a trickle-through, a trickle-down effect. I mean, those hardliners who are so into terrorism, who are interpreting Islam in that way, I think that they, they, they think music is haram anyway. They'll be burning this record. Exactly. They'll uh, be burning well, it on the streets of Bradford. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. Burning burning my CD on the streets of Bradford. Yeah. But at least they're reacting. I mean, that's the main thing. 
thousands and thousands of Pakistanis, young Pakistanis, Muslims have emailed me to say that thank you for standing up. And I think it's starting the debate. That's the important thing. This was not meant to do much more than to start that. But it's, it's become an anthem in Pakistan and it's fast becoming a movement. Fessel, do you like the song? Were you rocking out to it in our studio? I'm one of these hardliners, which I think <laughs> I mentioned in the... Are you going to be burning the CD? No, I'm not. <laughs> don't quite indulge in that. I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting song, though, and it comes off this back of a Not In Our Name campaign, which we've seen particularly pick up speed following the Glasgow you know, failed attacks there. In terms of, I think, what you said in the report is key, that this song seems to be aimed at, if you like, that those people who've already come out and say, you know, this is not in our name. What we're talking about here is a process of radicalisation. And if we're looking at the song and seeing how effective a tool it is in the fight against radicalisation, then let's be honest, it just isn't really going to do much, is it? Now, our blogger said that the only voices being heard are the extreme ones. So does this mean every time there's a terrorist atrocity that Muslims should come out and say, not in our name? I think from the Muslim perspective, there's some kind of is this apathy which is setting in, which is that, look, we, we don't... You know, we don't endorse this. Islam doesn't teach this. When a bomb goes off on the tube, it doesn't discriminate. You know, I get the tube every single day. And as a Muslim, when the bomb goes off, it's going to kill me as much as it's going to kill the next person. So I think to a degree, there's an apathy setting into the Muslim community that, look, we consistently come out and say Islam has nothing to do with this. Islam hasn't got anything to do with this. This is a purely political agenda which is being pushed. Let's all wake up and realise that and let's fight it together. Now, Faisal is a man of many hats. When he's not answering questions about cartoons or pop songs, he's wearing his Fosis hat and responding to allegations that university campuses are breeding grounds for extremism. Fosis estimates there are around 90,000 Muslim students in Britain and around half of these will come into contact with an Islamic society during their university life. In the last few weeks, we've had different debates about the threat of on-campus extremism. On Radio 4's Today programme, author and former Islamist Ed Hussain said that radical groups are still getting away with recruiting students and operating on campus because education bosses don't want to intervene. What happens in our universities, particularly with British Muslim students, determines the type of Islam we will see in Britain 20 years hence. The talk of jihad throughout the 1990s produced 7-7. In 1997, we were discussing Islamist extremism on campuses. In 2007, we're still busy doing so. Unless lecturers, students, vice-chancellors and government reach consensus, then we will still be discussing Islamism in 2017. It is imperative that we act, and act now. But on the same programme, Higher Education Minister Bill Rammel responded, claiming that the problem is not widespread and that the way forward is partnership with student societies and to isolate and challenge people drawn to extremism. In our judgment, uh, there is a serious, although not widespread, threat uh, from Islamic extremism on campus. That's why we published guidance to university vice-chancellors last November on tackling violent extremism in the name of Islam, which is about creating partnership between universities, student unions, student societies and the police working together. It's why, within the Terrorism Act, uh, we've made it an offence to withhold information about uh, a terrorist act that may be committed. Vessel, is there a problem? We've had this discussion since 7-7 and individuals like Ed Hussain have 
Ed Hussein is not the first and he won't be the last you know former Muslim re, you know radicalized and he was almost on the brink and then got pulled back by you know some but we've 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 heard these kind of individuals come out before and and claim that there's this real issue of radicalization taking place and when you listen to people like Ed Hussein you know we really need to understand what he means when he uses the, the term radicalization you know he was talking in a recent interview how he came to college and when he left it two years later the men had grown beards and the women were wearing scarves they had all suddenly become radicalized so this was his process of radicalization you know, growing a beard and wearing a scarf. So according to him, you know, someone like myself who, wears, who has a beard would be considered a, a radical. So, I mean, language has played such a key role in, in this process. And what we say, what we call radicalization, are people who kind of endorse and encourage the kind of events that we, we saw on 7-7. To that extent, there has been no single shred of evidence put forward by anybody coming forward, except for emotional rhetoric. There has been a single shred of evidence to suggest that universities are breeding grounds for terrorists. One of the things that Ed Hussein alleges is that rogue elements are penetrating ISOCs up and down the country <laughs> and targeting and picking off weaker individuals and manipulating them away from the haven of Islamic societies. Yeah. Are there any safeguards built in to stop this from happening? Okay, from, from my perspective, I'm, I'm the representative, you know, the, the spokesperson re representing 90,000 Muslim students in higher and further education. On an almost weekly basis, I'm visiting different Islamic societies, speaking to different Islamic society presidents, speaking to people on the ground. And we, we simply aren't getting the same kind of picture which Ed is, Ed is painting. So if Ed is saying that this is the case, well, let's sit around the table and Ed you show us where this is taking place and let's work together to defeat it but until people like Ed don't bring forward the evidence and people like myself I'm going to waste time dealing with him. I mean what are the Islamic societies saying to you are they saying we've got a problem with extremists or is it something very different? Islamic societies are saying to us look how can we best give you know Muslim students the opportunity to have a normal higher education this is what they want you know we've had reports of MI5 approaching Muslim students on campuses you know asking them to spy on other students you know Muslim students have had to study under the cloud of suspicion you know a blanket suspicion following 7-7 that suddenly you know we are terrorists we are targets each one of us is a potential and this has been so unfortunate because what it has done is it's, it's really damaged a lot of people's you know opportunity to have fun while at university. What about the Hizbut issue? I mean, from our perspective, Hizbut Tahrir is an is a, is a, is a organisation um, that is fairly controversial in some of the things that it says, and it's very obviously very anti-British uh, foreign policy and calls for a lot of debates around these kind of issues. We've been quite clear in our stance on Hizbut Tahrir that it's not an organisation that endorses or condones the kind of events we saw on 7-7 and the kind of events we saw on 9-11. And so from our perspective, that while it may be you know, uncomfortable because obviously they, they talk about some very key issues, it's not an organisation that should be banned. So if people aren't getting radicalised on campus, where is it happening? Well, this is the very premise which we've, we've constantly questioned following 7-7. If you look at those individuals who carried out the acts on 7-7, they went to Tesco's, they went to the local masjids, they went to the local gyms. At what point do they then become radicalised? And no one has brought forward any evidence suggesting that that point was at university. Last week I went to City Circle, a London-based group for young Muslims, where they were discussing the pastoral needs of Muslim students on campus. I asked members of the audience what their concerns were. The main issue on campus in relation to Muslim students is their lack of understanding of being a Muslim and what it means to be a Muslim in the UK. They come from a background where they're only taught the rituals and the dogma of their faith. So they come to university, that makes them quite vulnerable to various groups who will uh, exploit that lack of understanding and knowledge to sort of lead them astray. Now, the government has come up with various ways of addressing some of these issues. One of them is by monitoring 
students who look like they may they may be Muslim or getting members of staff or you know students to basically snitch on their fellow students is that the way forward personally uh, I think that is a flawed strategy Dr. Siddiqui touched on something that would make a tremendous amount of difference and with very low cost which would be the investment in pastoral support for Muslim students specifically focused on the understanding of their faith and their religion and investing in that would actually deliver a greater impact for the government. My, my concern is about a whole generation of young Muslims who have this perception which is totally unfounded that they're living in a country that is in some way out to get them. Now I know you both left university a couple of years ago but I'm sure your memories can stretch back to when you were on campus. What were the issues for you and your Muslim friends or your non-Muslim friends? Uh, the first year when I started university was 9-11 um, so when everyone came and became friends and that's all we discussed really and so at first it started off as a like east against west kind of thing and oh my gosh, it was a bit like a movie. It was really like blown sort of into crazy new world kind of thing. But then um, at my Islamic society, they got speakers in, scholars in to explain what was happening, to explain the ideas behind like what the people were thinking when they like did this and how wrong it is in Islam. And they explained it in an Islamic perspective. So I thought like at my university, the Islamic society was very good. They had knowledge so they could, you know, say things from the Quran, from the Hadith and so on. Vessel, does this chime with what you're hearing? It depends which bit you're talking about. Let's talk about the guy because when you, you when you were listening to him you looked yeah. slightly quizzical almost. I mean it's about pictures which are being painted and the reality on the ground and the difference between the two. The, the pictures he was painting was this whole generation of young Muslims who think Britain's out to get them simply isn't isn't the case. You know, young British Muslims, as does many as do many people, have a legitimate concern about British foreign policy. There's one thing having concern about British foreign policy and anti-terror legislation, and it's another thing thinking that the whole country's out to get you. So I just don't. I think it's almost an insult to to you know young Muslims studying in, in university to somehow suggest that we're not capable of intellectualising, if you like, the difference between the two. And what about the young lady? She said that her Islamic society was very good at bringing in people from the outside to provide an Islamic perspective on current affairs, really, if you like. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's more of a picture which we're seeing up and down the country. You know, you know, Islamic societies using scholars in the local area, using people of knowledge in the local area to come down and talk about you know, these, these hard issues of, of jihad, of terrorism, of Western foreign policy and, and these kind of issues and just reconciling it all together as to what the case you know, should really be. And what's the way forward? What can Muslim students expect in the next academic year? I mean, it's unfortunate, but I think we're still going to be living under this cloud of suspicion, and I think that will continue to, to take place until we have a real academic debate around this issue of supposed and alleged extremism on campus. And I think that really is unfortunate, and it's unfortunate to be pessimistic, but from a, you know, a positive side is that Muslim students really are responding very well. You know, they're coming out, they're saying that we're not going to stand for this, we're not going to take this, and we really are going to you know, claim our rights back. Faisal Hundra, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and presented by me, Riaz Akbat. Jazakallah for listening. I think you've poked me enough and now I think you should stroke me. Next week we're launching a new feature, Quranorama, bigging up those Muslim kids who have finished the Quran for the first time. If you've any suggestions, then get in touch. Until next week, wa alaikum wassalam. Guardian Unlimited.